0: On up, Miss Isabella. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, so if you've got a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be starting in verse 11 in just a moment. If you are a guest here today, I want to say welcome especially to you. We've prayed for your presence. We've expected you to be here. You've been prayed for, and for all of us, our expectation is that we would magnify the Lord. And the invitation to all of you is that you join us as we do it. Now, if you fill out this card in the seat back in front of you, you can drop it into the boxes that say give on your way out, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, Isabella is going to read our passage. It's going to be on the screen as well. Here's the mic for you. Uh, and let's pay attention and listen to the words of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody.
0: Good morning. Hold it
1: up tight. Here you go. Let us hear the reading of God's Word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: I want to invite you just to pray before we dive into this passage. Let's pray with the expectation that God would have words for us to hear from Him today. Father, I pray that for those specifically in this room to whom you've not made yourself known, that you've not appeared in a way that, in a grace that leads to salvation. I pray that you'd reveal both the need for this kind of grace and the supply of this grace that you've so richly blessed us with in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that also you'd show us how this gospel story, the truth of who you are and what you've done, would train us today to renounce ungodliness, to renounce unrighteousness. We wouldn't pretend that you're not offended by sin. We're not pretend that that you're not moved to great compassion and grace that would cover all of our sins if we just come to You. So Lord, I pray that today as we come to You, that You'd magnify Yourself and that we would be caught up in this great glory of Your appearing. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is week five for us looking at the book of Titus, and so if you've missed the previous four weeks, this sermon really is in conjunction with last week, about how the gospel trains us in righteousness, how the good grace of God might train us, and today we'll consider His appearing, the fact that grace has appeared to us. That word appeared, uh, it's something that maybe, maybe you haven't thought much about how God's grace would appear today. One of our prayers just said, I pray that God would make himself visible and his grace known to us by the light of his revelation in our heart. There's a, a little restaurant in the town of Belmont, North Carolina, in the area that I moved from, here from, called Nellie's. This little southern kitchen. Now, there's nothing really spectacular about the food in this uh, kitchen. It was two blocks from our church offices and there's lots of restaurants in Jackson that are similar to Nellie's, okay? But in Belmont, North Carolina, it was like the blue plate special. It was the one and only. But this particular restaurant happened to be owned by the Jonas Brothers. Now I cannot tell you like any lyric of the Jonas Brothers. I know nothing other than that they exist and that they're somewhat famous. And every once in a while, they would come to this restaurant that they owned and they would make an appearance, okay? And people that were in the restaurant would see that this place belongs to someone else. Uh, If you didn't know that they were the owners, uh, you might show up and they show up and suddenly you're surprised. Hey, there's someone famous in this room. That appearance would change the way that anybody who was eating at the restaurant would would expect and experience the food and place of this restaurant. You suddenly know who owns the place, right? Now that changed every time that you would visit that restaurant beyond that point. People would be talking about it on social media. Hey, the Jonas Brothers are in town and they're at their restaurant. And suddenly the attendance to this restaurant would would bump up. And once you see it, it becomes clear. Because if you go to the bathroom, there's record labels on the wall and, and awards that they've won. And in a very similar way, the gospel uh, becomes clear to those who believe it. It, the way, it changes the way that you see everything else in light of this story of grace. Just to recap the last several weeks, Titus has been left in this island of Crete by Paul, Paul is writing to him saying, hey, I left you there for a purpose. What's the purpose? I want you to put what remains in order, okay? There's some disorganization that I want you to act upon. What does that look like? Number one, you need to appoint elders in every town, in every little house church. I want you to set up leadership that are qualified, that are qualified to lead, and they know the scriptures. They know the doctrine of God so that they can both teach it and rebuke anything that's opposed to it. Then right after this, he says, I want you to not only set up leaders, but I want you to silence anyone who's speaking in an insubordinate way, who's teaching against what the doctrine of God is revealed in the scripture. So appoint elders, silence false teachers, and then over this week and last week, he's to teach them what accords with sound doctrine. Now this group of people had heard about God's grace. They had heard the gospel, but there was a way in which they were living perhaps that wasn't in alignment. They were out of step with what it looked like to believe the gospel. And last week we talked about what would it look like for people who believe the gospel to be making an argument with their lives as living proof that this thing is true, that we believe. And this week is a continual stream of that. What does it look like for us to live in accordance to this gospel of God? that we've heard, that's appeared through Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we talked about the content of godly living, like what, how older men should act, how younger men should act, how older women should act, how younger women should act. And that's the content of the house that's being built in the people of God. But the foundation of it, that all of that content is to be built upon, is the grace of Jesus Christ. What's the foundation for that kind of living, right kind of living? It's God's grace poured out to us through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask this question before we launch into it. What is the evidence of God's grace in our lives? What is the evidence of God's grace? And he's going to lay out in this passage, what is the past? This is basic answer to that. Past, present future grace is the foundation and the only hope of godly living. It's the only hope, okay? So three parts we're going to look at through this passage. There's probably more than this, but first there's an appearance of God's grace. That is our salvation. Then the training of grace is our sanctification. It's how we're changing. We're renouncing things and pursuing things because of this grace. And then ultimately our future glory is the hope that we have. This is foundational to everything that God is inviting us into as he displays his life through his people. Grace defines the story of who of our past, how it's been redeemed, it defines the story of who we're becoming in this present age and it defines our future hope. It's all on this foundation of grace. It defines all those things. And so it's the ultimate story of how it started, how it's going and where we're heading. Let's start looking at again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, a couple times, a couple weeks ago, I spent some time defining what grace is. Most of us believe that God's grace is only God's unmerited favor. It's His willingness to offer His enemies, His prodigals, His rebellious creation, in order that they might be reconciled to Him. And that is what it is, but it's not all of what it is. It doesn't just exist to be understood or to be explained, but ultimately God's grace is demonstrated through this person, Jesus Christ. He gave himself to redeem us salvation and sanctification, redemption, purification, God's grace appears through Jesus, but it continues to work in the life of everyone who believes. It's God at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's not only God's favor towards us, but it's its power demonstrated through us first for salvation. Now, At this moment where Jesus shows up, it's like a movie with a big reveal. Or like you step into Nellie's and suddenly the Jonas Brothers are there. There's a big plot twist to all of creation and our rebellion against the holy God. Jesus appears, the physical evidence of God's grace towards creation. John chapter one says it this way. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And he was full of grace, and truth. And what did we see? What did we see when we looked at Jesus? John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks above me, before he was before me, because he was before me. And then verse 16 of the same chapter says this For from his fullness we have all, that's everyone who believes, received grace upon grace. In other words, if we truly see who Jesus is and what He's come to accomplish in the world, there's this grace that first of all brings salvation, but it continues. Grace upon grace upon grace for all people. He's brought salvation to everyone from every tribe, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you've yet to do. God's made provision for anyone who would repent and believe, and salvation is only a gift to those who know that they need it. So his grace appears to all people bringing salvation. But ultimately, the people that he's referring to are those who know their need and have experienced his supply of that need. God's grace has appeared. Now, the second follow up question to that is, has God's grace appeared specifically to you? Have you witnessed and beheld his glory? Because God calls his church his witnesses. That means that you've seen something that you could stand up on the stand and say, I've seen something that remains true. Something maybe you've never noticed before. A couple of days ago, Casey and I were taking a walk, walking through a neighborhood that we've walked through a hundred times, and we saw a house that we'd never noticed before. We said, have you ever seen that? I don't think I've ever seen that before. And that's somewhat what it's like when you see the grace of Jesus revealed towards you who believe. It changes everything else. And every time you walk past that house from this point forward, you know that it exists. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. This is our testimony if we believe that there's something that has appeared to us that from this moment forward, this appearance is the lens through which we see everything else. What has God done to accomplish this great salvation? If you go on down in verse 14, He says this, Who gave Himself? That's Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gives this grace, it appears, to redeem us, to give us salvation, to redeem us from lawlessness. You come to God just as you are, but he doesn't just leave us where you're at. Now, for those of you who have not yet seen this good grace, this love displayed through the cross of Jesus, his invitation to you is to behold, to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see that he's good today, just as we sing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He brings you in from wherever you've been, from whatever you've done, and when he appears, he's like the sun, and you not only see him, but it's through him that you see everything else that exists. He shows up and you realize that he owns the place. God's grace changes everything. What did he do? This amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It Saved a wretch like me. It doesn't just mean that you're crying in the crowd, believing that God has redeemed you, but he's continuing the work of training us. What does it do? Grace is not just God's work for us, but it's God's work in us to shape who we're becoming. Grace is in this tension, like a trainer. Look again at verse 12. It's going to be on the screen. Grace not only appeared, but grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the, the grace of God is here to train us to shape who we are still becoming. It doesn't just automatically deliver you to some other world. You still live in between what he's done and what he's yet to do. And you live in that tension if you believe he's still working to develop who you're becoming. Now he says in this place that that you renounce things. There's things that if you see his grace towards you, it begins to change your taste for the things that you enjoyed before. It makes you sick to think about the things that you would have consumed before. A few years ago, there was a guy that had grown up in France. His father was a church planter, and we were baptizing some people in front of our church. And usually we have a liturgy. A liturgy is just something that we regularly say to rehearse the truth of what's going on. So whenever we do a baptism, usually there's a few questions like, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And everybody up there says, yes, we do. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again? Yes, we do. Do you want to follow him for the rest of your life? Yes, we do. And so we dunk them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This guy from France comes up to me afterwards. He's like, hey, listen, I don't know if it's because we just uh, followed a different liturgy, but in France, there's such spiritual darkness uh, that we also do renunciations. And renunciation would just be like something that you're saying, I leave this behind me. So when someone was baptized in his father's church in France, they would use the book of common prayer. And and we don't typically like read the book of common prayer. But I want to read to you what happens after those confessions for someone who would be baptized in this way. There's questions and then answers. These are the questions coming on the screen. Not only do you believe these things, but also do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Can you imagine hearing someone say, I renounce them? Next question. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Last one. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. What a beautiful confession, not just to say that we believe these things, but because we believe these things, there's a way in which we're transitioning and there's an old life that we leave behind us. God's grace doesn't just call us towards himself, but he's calling and inviting us away from the lawlessness from which he's redeemed us. We've received a spiritual salvation, and spiritual salvation means that in some ways we've been saved from spiritual forces of wickedness. Do you guys know that there's actually an enemy out there that has a strategic plan to steal, kill, and destroy you specifically? And in this passage, he says, you're to renounce ungodliness. That means anything that doesn't resemble God's glory, his character, greed, corruption, lies, these things bear no resemblance to you. I love that confession that we said earlier. When we talk about any attachment to the world, where we spend all that we have on our comfort and amusements, this bears no resemblance to you. For us to regularly say, hey, there are things and ways in which we could behave that we're saying, that doesn't resemble the God who saved me. So we renounce ungodliness. We renounce worldly passions. What's the world after? Fame being extraordinary, sexual fulfillment, career fulfillment, financial freedom. Whatever the world's going after, the people of God have a different direction and claim on their life. We're not passionate about the same things any longer. The world has passions. We have Jesus. And it's shaping what we're passionate about. Now we shift to the positive. It's not just things that they renounced and confessed. That gets to what's getting cut out of the diet, right? But there's things that are being added into the diet too. He made humanity for flourishing. And what's going to make our lives flourish He's saying you renounce these things and you pursue godliness. If ungodliness is any trait that doesn't resemble our father, godliness is all the things that resemble what he's like to the world. For us to be agents of reconciliation where we represent his grace Self-controlled. Remember last week when we talked about dignified men, older men living self-controlled life? And Proverbs described a man without self-control like a city without walls. In other words, part of God's grace appearing and training is that he's building the right kind of walls so we know what to let in and when we know what to export from our lives, we have self-control that's a fruit of the Spirit living in and through us. God begins to build walls of defense so that we're upright, that's the next word, virtuous, dignified, worthy of replication and respect. Godly lives, lives that resemble God's glory and grace. And this is the purpose and training, not just to have lives that are admirable. He's basically arguing in this whole passage that there are people who are going to witness your life and it's either going to be living proof that the gospel's true or it's going to be evidence that the truth could be reviled. Ultimately, that's what he's saying. The content of a life based on God's grace, the foundation of his grace, and the foundation of grace that builds a life that looks like this, ultimately make an argument for the truth claims of the gospel. That's the purpose in this training, that God would be admired. Not that our lives would be admirable. That people would see our lives and say there's something profoundly different about this group of people that's winsome and full of the aroma of Christ. It looks and smells like Him. It, it resembles Him in every way. The training of grace is that we would continue to move from one degree of glory to another to resemble what He's like. Again, in John chapter 1, it says from His fullness, this is where we receive it. grace upon grace. Upon grace. The other thing that's really important about this sanctification is that it's in this present age. A lot of times people see salvation, especially in the South, as something that capsulates their past and says, that's dealt with now, and secures their future, where one day they're gonna die and get to be in heaven that we just sang about. Like one day we'll see them face to face. It's going to be amazing. It defines our redeemed past, it defines our redeemed future, but it has very little to do with this present age. What I'm telling you is that what Titus is describing about the grace of God is that it has very much to do with where you're at today. It's not just securing your future or redeeming your past. He's saying in this very moment, God's grace is training you in these ways. We have to see our salvation is not just a history piece, but present tense reality. And it's not just our destination, but our present tense reality. I I had this picture of an airplane now, you know that every time you if you ride on an airplane on a regular basis, almost every airplane is like, it's looking very similar. You enter in, you either sit next to the window or the aisle or right in the middle where you're squished. And either way, if you've had lots of experiences on a plane, you cannot remember which plane ride you're referring to when you watch the movie that you're saying. You know what I'm saying? I had like three connecting flights a few weeks ago. And I watched a movie and someone asked me which flight was that. I can't remember. I have no idea because it didn't make any difference because I was up in the air away from the journey. And a lot of times we see our salvation as this place where we're just in between destinations instead of being able to see that all along the way God's redeeming and rescuing and transforming us. He's not taking us away from our station and going to plop us into heaven one day. He's saying, I want you all along the way to be receiving grace upon grace upon grace. The reality of who we're becoming in the future has broken into the present. It's in the here and now. We don't assume that we've learned everything that there is to know. We don't assume that God has rearranged everything He's going to arrange. We're waiting and hoping while God's currently present tense transforming us. We live in that tension between what God's done, what He's doing, and what He's promised to do. Cooperating with God's grace so that it's not in vain. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says. That you live in such a way that His grace would not be in vain. Working together with Him then. It's an inaugurated eschatology. That means that there's something promised to us in the future that is broken into the here and now. It's inaugurated itself into the very heart's and lives and minds of each one of you who believe in this room. And that means in this present moment, there's things that the Holy Spirit is calling us to both renounce and to pursue. And we press on towards the prize of our high calling. God's grace is pursuing us and it's inviting us into the pursuit of purification where He creates a people who are zealous for good works. Look at verse 13 though. I'm getting ahead of myself. What does it look like to be in the tension? Verse 13, we wait. We're waiting for our blessed hope. What's the hope of our lives? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our future glory is the hope that we're clinging to. Our glory, the Lord's glory, that's what motivates and keeps us fueled in this moment. It's a present tense grace with the assurance that one day all of the ways that we struggle and and struggle with sin, when we struggle with the world, when we see injustice, there's a promise that we're clinging on to believing that Jesus is going to one day return. He didn't just come once. He's coming again. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a... This is going to tell you everything you need to know about my childhood. My earliest dream that I can remember is of the rapture, okay? Okay. So I grew up in churches where I was terrified of this moment where Jesus was going to come back and I better be ready. I was absolutely mortified that Jesus is going to show up at the worst moment. And because of that, there was an avoidance of this reality. Now, the first time I can remember someone saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm good if he doesn't come. Like, I'm all right just living it out here. Like, let's just let him wait for a very, very long time before he comes. And what that creates in us is a general mindset where we try not to think about the fact that Jesus is coming back because maybe we're terrified, like I was, where if there was a quiet house, we'd be left behind. Where did everybody go? Every time the house was quiet, I was like, oh, no, where are my parents? Maybe I got left behind. So, in some ways, there's this temptation to fear that reality or to avoid that reality. Like, it's not something I really want to think about. I believe that, like, confessionally, it's going to happen. But the perusia or God's coming presence that's going to come will be for final judgment of His enemies. And some of us, maybe you fear that because you're not sure if you're one of the enemies or one of God's friends. But, But everything in the New Testament describes this hope of Jesus coming again as something that would be just permeating our hearts with joy and anticipation and hope. In fact, you you know the song that we sing at Christmas, uh, Joy to the World. It's actually not about Jesus' first coming. It's actually singing about the hope of his second coming. Just remember the words again. Let earth receive her king. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Listen, thorns continued to infest the ground when Jesus was born. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And then imagine this with me. He rules the world with peace, truth, and grace and makes all the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love the vision that we have is not just that we would believe that Jesus is coming because, look, creeds matter. Historic creeds. Historical orthodoxy matters. But they're not intended to create like emptiness in our hearts. The Apostles' Creed says this, He ascended into heaven. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Then the Nicene Creed says it this way, He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. The point of those creeds is not just to fill our minds with orthodoxy, but to help us hope for this coming joy where he's going to make everything wrong that's ever happened right, where he'll settle the score once and for all, well, he'll come to reign over all creation and remove all of the signs of his curse and to reign once and for all forevermore. One of the reasons that we can transfer from being terrified to being hopeful is because of how Revelation 21 describes this moment. This is how he says it. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he, God himself will be with them as their God. And here's the question I want to ask you. What will that be like? What will that be like when God dwells with us? Why would that fill our imagination with hope and joy? He goes on to say this this is what it's going to be like. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That is worthy of our hope. It transforms the present because of our future. This hope doesn't just leave us alone like walking in circles. It transforms the way that we enter into the world around us as agents for his kingdom. Here's what's at stake. Here's a couple ways that we could wait for that kind of thing. We could sit around twiddling our thumbs, just going, hope it comes today. Hope it comes today. And I do too. I hope for that. But the way in which he describes how we would wait looks like this. Look at verse 14. This is Jesus. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And one, we're a people. This is the mark of God's people. Yesterday I was watching the LSU Ole Miss game and Casey and I were like, can you imagine the amount of money spent on all the shirts? Like, just the shirts represented in that crowd. Like there's an ocean of blue and gold and then there's like little tiny islands of, of red, you know, for Ole Miss. She's like, can you imagine? And you can see which team they represent. You can see what it looks like. You can see who they're rooting for by just looking at the crowd. The distinction, the identity of God's people is that we're zealous for good works. That's what it looks like to be wearing the team jersey and waiting for him to come again. We're zealous for the things of His kingdom coming and permeating this world in the here and now. All of the future hope being brought into the day today. We're your people, Lord. There's a new citizenship that each person in this room, if you believe you have a new citizenship, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people, and for what? That we might declare His excellencies to the world around us that other people might hear and see and know what He's like and how He works. He, we we said this this morning our, our Ken said this in our men's time this morning Ephesians 2:10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them just imagine that it's like walking in this space that God's already ordained that your life would be representing him in these specific ways in this present age he has works prepared just for you and, and I don't want you to go thinking that God's grace always calls people to something that, that Americans would deem extraordinary, okay? I don't want you to think that that means you're supposed to do something absolutely extraordinary because some people think, like, we're created for good works. You're immediately thinking, I guess I got to go to Africa. I guess I'm going to go somewhere where Jesus has not been named. And some of you will, and some of you should. And some of you should just wash the dishes in your house and be a blessing to your spouse. This afternoon, there's going to be a shower for someone in in our congregation. And I was thinking about that. They're having like a diaper shower. and, And I was thinking about the reality of just changing diapers for every mother in this room that's still in that stage. There's this book uh, called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. And I regularly read these prayers because they provide like some rails for my mind when my mind feels uncreative. And I'm just with the Lord asking, okay, what should I pray? Anyway, he has this liturgy for changing diapers. I thought it was a great liturgy. I wanted to read it to you today because I think there's a lot of unremarkable acts that each of you have been prepared to do in advance. And I want you to stir your imagination praying this. It's going to be on the screen. Take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ. And in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom. Across generations, open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart. And how the changing of a heart might sit upstream from the changing of the world. Amen. Let it be so. Look, if you belong to Christ, what I you to know is that you were bought with a price. You're his possession. You belong to him. And one day, his grace upon grace upon grace will continue to be revealed to you where you see him as he is and you will behold him face to face. And as you've been being changed from one degree of glory to another, his grace will ultimately be in front of you face to face and you will be transformed. 2 Corinthians puts it this way in verse chapter 3. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, he's transforming us. One of his transformations that he wants not only to possess our lives, but to use us for His good works. And so I, I want to leave you with this question and an invitation. The question is this, where do you see the evidence of God's continued grace? In this moment, in the tension between God, what God has already done in your salvation and what you believe He's going to do when He returns or calls you home. What is the evidence of God's grace being demonstrated right now? Because here's, here's as you imagine that, his invitation to you is to join him to just join him as he pours out his grace. The true evidence of God's grace is not just a testimony of what God previously did. The evidence of God's grace is that he's still working in your life today. That he's done something in the past, he's promised something in the future, but he's transforming the here and now and he's asking us the question as a congregation, who are we becoming? Because if His grace is going to be dispersed among us, we're going to be becoming becoming more and more and more like Him. Resembling the grace that He's shown to us, to the people around us. He hasn't just appeared, He's brought salvation. His grace is in the here and now bringing sanctification. And His grace continues to fill our hearts and our minds with hope. His grace is powerfully working to accomplish all of that. So if you're exhausted... I want you to know His grace is sufficient for you. Titus is being told in this moment to declare these things, to not be disregarded in them because the evidence of God's grace is that it continues to work. That's an evidence that you've actually received and His grace has appeared to you. It's continuing to work. Continuing to work so that you renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness. So that you renounce your own possessions and say, I'm not my own. Do with me whatever you will. So where is God's grace at work in you and around you and in the world? The invitation that Christ would extend to all of us is that we would join him in it. He's raising up a people zealous for good works. Let's pray that that would be so in us today. Would you join me in praying that? Lord, thank you for your word today. And I pray that those that feel disheartened or discouraged would be encouraged. That they would be able to see that you're good, that you've not only accomplished through the cross our history, but you've accomplished our future and the here and now. I pray that your grace would continue to work, that it would be so evident in the life of this group of people that we are incomplete, but you're still working. I pray this all for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen.